0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you uh, turn with me to the book of Leviticus, the third book in the Bible. This morning we find ourselves in the 19th chapter, Leviticus chapter 19. I want to read the first 18 verses. and If you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. The Lord said to Moses, say to the whole community, of the Israelites, you must be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must keep your Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a communal sacrifice of well-being to the Lord, offer it so that it will be accepted on your account. It must be eaten on the day of your sacrifice or the following day. Whatever is left over on the third day must be burned with fire. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it's foul. It will not be accepted. Anyone who eats it will be liable to punishment because they defiled what is holy to the Lord. That person will be cut off from their people. When you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field and don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also, do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. You must not steal, nor deceive, nor lie to each other. You must not swear falsely by my name, desecrating your God's name in doing so. I am the Lord. You must not oppress your neighbors or rob them. Do not withhold a hired laborer's pay overnight. You must not insult a deaf person or put some obstacle in front of a blind person that would cause them to trip. Instead, fear your God, for I am the Lord. You must not act unjustly in a legal case. Do not show favoritism to the poor or deference to the great. You must judge your fellow Israelites fairly. Do not go around slandering your people. Do not stand by while your neighbor's blood is shed. I am the Lord. You must not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your fellow Israelite strongly so you don't become responsible for a sin. But you must not take revenge nor hold a grudge against any of your people. Instead, you must love your neighbor as yourself. For I am the Lord. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you're a guest with us today, we're in the, not far from the middle, but we are in a year that we're calling uh, The Story That Changes Everything, and some of you are participating with us daily or weekly, and, and the good news is sometime between uh, yesterday and today, we are now one-tenth of the way through the whole Scripture. Um. And we're now in the middle of um, an interesting book. So we start in Genesis, and Genesis has so much to say to us about who we are created to be and what are the problems in the world and God's promises upon God's people and and Exodus. Come on, Exodus. Um, So important, that understanding of what it means for God to be redeeming us and bringing us out of our brokenness and not just getting us out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of us. So, so good, so good. And Leviticus, come on, um, so, so we're in Leviticus, which is that part of the Scripture where if you've ever committed to try to read through the Scripture in a year, this is usually the place where it all falls apart, right? Um, you are about a tenth of the way through, and we get into all these texts filled with rituals and priests and rules that all seem quite strange and historically distant from us. And and yet, as we've been going through Leviticus these last several days, it it has reminded me again about its pattern and how, even though it's odd, how central it is to the way that we understand the primary purpose of God in this thing that we call the Christian faith. Uh, I know that many of you have been around for a long time and uh, you've been excited to get to Leviticus so that we could swim in the deep end and think about... The spiritual significance of mixed fibers or various growths on the walls of your house or, uh, you know, kind of embarrassing bodily emissions. Um, But I'm going to give all of you the day off. Um, This morning, I primarily want to preach to those of you who are fairly new to this thing and are maybe a little confused by all of it and maybe trying to consider, do you even want into this thing at all? And I want to think with you about how Leviticus speaks to the central question that I think the gospel is trying to ask and answer in our lives. So at the heart of this book is is chapter 17. Chapter 17 is about the Day of Atonement. Chapter 17 and 18 outline this day, this annual day where Israel celebrates the grace of God. But But coming up before that are, and after that, are chapters on various rituals. So eight of the 27 chapters in Leviticus are about rituals. Those chapters begin the book and end the book. And after we get rituals, we get five chapters, three at the beginning and two at the end, about the priesthood and how the priesthood is structured and formed. But then we get 12 chapters that that move into these central chapters on the Day of Atonement. We get these 12 chapters that have to do with with various codes or laws related to the holy life. I want to think about those three things, about rituals and priests and about these laws. But I want to think about this as simply as I can with you this morning. And I want to say that I think all of this stuff addresses... Again, the primary question that the gospel is trying to ask and answer. And as we get to that question, let me say, first of all, there's some other important questions that the gospel is trying to ask and answer. And I am afraid sometimes we've taken some of those questions that are important, but maybe not the central questions, and we've made them central. In particular, I feel like over the last several centuries in Christian history, one of the questions that's important, but that we've made central is this question, what happens to us when we die? Now, please, we've just celebrated uh, so many folks who were grieving their loss. And, and that question of do we have hope after death is so important uh, to who we are. And and thanks be to God. For those of us who trust in Christ, the answer is yes, indeed, we have hope in the gift of eternal life even after we die. Thanks be to God, right? And, and that's so important. It's so, such a vital question for us, but I am afraid sometimes we've turned that into the question, that is the question that the gospel is trying to ask and answer. And and that may explain why so many of us here today have gray hair, because we're getting very close to that time, and that's a very important question, and maybe why some of the young folk aren't here, because they aren't, they aren't sure they're going to die yet, and maybe they'll come back when that question becomes a little more vital, right? Or it may be that sometimes we think we settled that question a long time ago because we confessed some things and we've kind of got our fire insurance, as we used to call it when I was growing up in the church. Um, We got our fire insurance, we're we're free from judgment, and now we can just kind of go on with life. But I want to say to you this morning that part of the reason Leviticus is so important is because it gets at what I think is the central question of the gospel, and it's this question. What kind of people are we going to be? That the primary question of the Scripture is not, where are you going to go when you die? The primary question of the Scripture is, how are you going to live? What kind of character are you going to live your life with? In fact, the chapter right before the one we just read, chapter 18, is all about what to do with our bodies. But, but chapter 18... All, um, also gets into this question. As as we move, God says, as I move you out of Egypt and into the promised land, I'm getting you to kind of leave one life behind, but I'm moving you into a whole new kind of life. What is that life? What does that life look like? How do we embody that in the present? And so the text that we're looking at this morning, chapter 19, verse 2, I would encourage you to underline this call of God. Be holy as I am holy. That call to be holy, to reflect the unique character of God, that is the central aspect and the question that the gospel is most wanting to address. How can we become people who not just in death but in life reflect the nature and character of God? And I think I'm saying that not just because those of you who have been around a while and you're a Nazarene on purpose know we are part of a tradition called the holiness tradition. And so when we get to texts like this, we're like, yes, this is us. But we do come from a tradition where um, one of our kind of ancestors in the faith, John Wesley In the 18th century, as he looked around the Christianity of England of his day, he realized, man, there's so many people here who've kind of decided the question of where are they going to go when they die, but they haven't really settled the question of how are they going to live. And the more I wrestle with the scripture, John Wesley would want to say, the more I hear this call to be holy as as God is holy. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? But I would say it's not just we strange holiness folk who think like that. Um, I, I... Love, uh, Dallas Willard, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, and Willard wrote another book called The Great Omission, where he recognized this is the problem. We think that's the question, and we've, we've missed out on discipleship. What does spirit-filled Christ-likeness look like? Or a more recent author, N.T. Wright, I, I love writes constantly wrestling with this question, not just what do you believe, but how do you live after you believe? What is this call to Christian character that goes all the way through us? What does that look like and mean? And so I want to think about that question, how I think Leviticus tries to at least begin to answer that question for us. How are we supposed to live? What's the life that we're supposed to live like? And the first thing is, it does have to do with, with codes and rules. 16 times in the 19th chapter, God says this, I am the Lord your God. I tried to emphasize that as we were reading it, but God just keeps saying this. Listen, I am the Lord your God. I have certain expectations about you and your life because I'm the Lord your God. And so here are some of my expectations. And, And certainly it's right then that Leviticus deals with how do we live? What are the things that we do? And also what are the things that we don't do? And so a lot of the codes actually have to do with some of the things that we don't do. Um, I want you to notice, first of all, that there are some no's to the things that we don't do. In chapter 19, here are just some of them. Don't steal. Don't oppress. Don't insult people. Don't misuse your power. (laughs) I love the one that we went through. You may have been kind of going, why are we reading this? Uh, When we got to the part, don't eat the sacrifice on day three. Eat it on day one and two. By the way, it's kind of interesting, some scholars think the reason why you can't let it sit till day three is one, because they didn't have refrigerators, and it might make you sick, but the other is when you've sacrificed, like, that's a lot of meat to eat, so you can't just do it by yourself, invite your friends, have a party, don't leave everybody out of your meals. And so there's a whole bunch of don'ts, and I want to say to us this morning, part of the holy life is to recognize that there are things in our world, choices we make, ways that we behave, that not only bring destruction to ourselves, but bring destruction to the, the fabric of our community, the peacefulness of our church. And because of that, we just have to say no to them. There are just various aspects that we refuse to allow have possession of our lives and our bodies. And by the way, as God gives us these rules, part of the reason Leviticus gets so lengthy and so detailed is because every single aspect of our lives is claimed by God. And so there are things that you can't do with your body, and there are things that you can't do with your resources, and there are things you can't do with your time. Because we're called to be a particular kind of people in the world. And so if you're new... Part of deciding to get into this thing is to say no to some things. Now, if you've been around a while and you're on Nazarene On Purpose, you know we are really good at saying no to some things. And unfortunately, at times, the holiness tradition got so good at saying no to things that we stopped right there, just saying no to a whole bunch of things. But I want you to notice that those no's are said also so that we can say yes to a bunch of things. So here are some things that the text says yes to. Honoring your father and mother and all God's people said, amen. Keeping Sabbath, being fair to people, practicing economics in ways that take care of the stranger. We'll come back to some of those things. But part of living into this holy life is not just saying no to some things, but saying yes to a whole bunch of things that reflect the goodness and the beauty and the purposes of God in the world, again, in every single aspect of our lives. And one of the things I love about Leviticus, even though it's sometimes hard to translate rules and laws from so long ago into a new context— I've been reminded again and again, these codes are are practical and daily and they're local. They have to do with how we treat not just people around the world, but people closest to us and our families and our neighborhoods. And again, it includes everything, our bodies, our eating, our finances. It has to do with discovering the grain of the universe, that there are particular ways God has created all things. And and the more we find those structures, the more we live within those boundaries, the more goodness comes to us. But the key is, and the reason I finished at verse 18, is because at the heart of it is love. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Much later in the scripture, when Jesus is asked, what is the most important command? Jesus says, you know them. These two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you read Leviticus and you're having trouble figuring out, how do I take that law and put it here? Just do this. How is that trying to get me to love my neighbor, and how can I do that now? How can I live a life of love Now, there are five chapters that deal with the priesthood, and that's not just because we, uh, that's not because we religious leader types are especially holy. Um, In fact, there's only three stories in the book of Leviticus, and they're all scary, and they're all about God killing priests. Um, So there's the priesthood, but we're not always um, the role models that we should follow or that we ought to be also. But there is an aspect to the holy life that is priestly. And I think Leviticus invites those sons of Aaron and those who've been anointed into the priesthood in Leviticus. But it's interesting, the expansion of that becomes the priesthood of all believers. In fact, the scripture invites us all to be a kingdom of priests. And so what does life, what does a holy life look like when we are being a kingdom of priests? I think the basic function of the priest is to do this to take all of the brokenness and messiness of the world and to come and offer that to God. So as Pastor Diane led us just a few minutes ago, each week as we come to prayer, it's not just because we know we're supposed to do that and so we have a kind of to-do list of worship and we get to prayer and we check that off. Or it's not just because at some point Every one of us in this room is going to face the loss of a loved one or a crisis in our physical health or brokenness in our relationships, economic upheaval. And so this is my week to come and to offer those problems to God. No, every week we are called to pray because we are called to take all of that stuff that is so bothering us in the world today. And by the way, there is a lot in the world that is bothering me today because I think it bothers God. And breaks the heart of God. But part of what we're doing here today is to to not just complain about that stuff or get despairing about that stuff, even though that is a temptation. But it is to gather up all that stuff and go, I know the only source in the universe that can take care of this stuff. And we bring it then and offer it up to God. And say, God, it's election week. What a mess. God, there's so much violence in the world. God, the people around me are hurting. God, there's so much injustice. God, here it is. And we offer that up to God. And God receives all of that, but then God does this. God says, all right, I got it. Now go back and go mediate my love and my presence back to the world. And so part of being a holy people is to be this mediating presence that offers the world to God, but then constantly comes and reflects God back to the people. Are you with me? So important and so beautiful. And we're invited to to find our lives in that rhythm. But that leads then to 12 chapters. Almost half of the book is about various rituals then. These rituals that the priests and the people get involved in And I want to say part of the reason why that's so important is because if you're taking seriously that the central question of the gospel is how do we live the kind of life that reflects the life God wants us to have, a life we could call holy. If that's important, then here's the thing. That takes practice. It takes habits. It takes, it takes grooving our lives in ways that That daily and weekly are formed in patterns that are rehabiting our life and our heart. And as we've been going through Leviticus, I've been reminded again of those practices are ways to get new habits ingrained into our hearts. And if you don't think you have unhealthy habits, ask your spouse or your children. Or your neighbor. So, so much of this ritual is about rehabiting ourselves. But at the center of these rituals are two really important things. One is God's patience. So I I didn't get a chance to preach last week because we had such a wonderful service with Bill Kwan and thinking about this mission that we're involved in, and and that was so great. But I missed a chance to get to preach on Exodus. I know, and I never get to talk about that. So let me squeeze a mini one in. If I had preached last week, I would have preached on Exodus chapters 32 through 34. In those chapters, an amazing thing happens. In Exodus 31, God is on the, or Moses is on the mountain with God. And they've been there for 40 days. And God's been giving them instructions about the tabernacle and the law and all these things. And then at the end of chapter 31, God hands Moses the tablets. And it's kind of like, all right, did you get it all? All right, ready? Holiness on three. Ready, break. All right, like go, go do it. Like go embody this. Go build the tabernacle. Go do this, Moses. But here's the deal. That's the end of chapter 31. But while Moses and God are meeting and kind of settling all this together, down in the valley, Aaron and the people are building a golden calf. So now you, you got to catch the beauty and the irony of this. As part of those tablets that... God is handing to Moses, are the Ten Commandments, and the first two are this. Don't have any other gods before me, and don't make any graven images. So we're not even barely into this relationship, and they've already violated the two commandments. Well, in chapter 32 through 34, God and Moses have a conversation in which God says, hey, by the way, Moses, we're barely into this thing, and they're already violating the first two commandments. How about if I just smite them? The conversation in chapters 32 through 34 then basically wrestled with command number three, what kind of reputation or name is God going to have? Now, if, hang with me for just a minute. Exodus 32 through 34 remind me a lot of where we were several weeks ago in Genesis 6 through 8. In Genesis 6 through 8, God has flooded the world. It's the Noah story. The world is corrupt and full of violence, and so God punishes the world, and, and this flood destroys everybody but Noah and his family and the animals, the creatures on the ark. But if you remember, Noah gets out of the ark, gets drunk and naked, everything's kind of a mess again, and it's as though God goes, well, that wasn't really effective, was it? It's clear that the human heart is bent towards evil. And so God, essentially, in Genesis 6 says, so what am I going to do about that? If you remember, God basically says, well, I'm not going to have a fight with you. I'm actually going to hang up my bow. We're not going to go to war. But I'm going to keep covenanting my steadfast love and mercy to you. Are you with me? So now, back to Exodus 32 through 34, God says almost the same thing. Moses, these people are so stiff-necked and stubborn. I'm calling them to this life, but they are not living it. Maybe I should just smite them, and I'll start over with you. <laughs> and Moses says, well, no, that's a bad plan. You've already committed not to that plan, but and I know, you know, fire is not water, but still, you, you really com- you've committed to this. And, by the way, you are Yahweh, to which I love it. God says, oh, I know, Moses, I know. I'm Yahweh, Yahweh, full of steadfast love and mercy ready to relent from punishing. The beauty of those texts is this. You and I have been called to holy living, which means saying no to some things and yes to some other things. And it means rehabiting our lives in really particular ways. But you know, even the best of us who do that will still fall short of what God has called us to. And God can either decide (laughs) and start over But what those rituals remind Israel of every time they come to the mercy seat is they're reminded that there is grace there. Now that grace isn't cheap, that's why we got to bring those sacrifices. Because God isn't just being sentimental about this, saying, well, I know you're never going to get it right, but all right, I love you anyway, you rotten bunch. That's not grace. That's permissiveness. Grace receives us where we are in our brokenness, in our hurts, in not just our sin, but our shame. And those rituals just keep bringing the people back to know that Yahweh, Yahweh is full of steadfast love and mercy. On the Day of Atonement, that's the whole point of that first goat that that drew the lot to be sacrificed. There is no boundary between us and God. And God is so patient with us and will not give up until he has completed this work in us. But the second aspect is really important too. In some ways, it's about the other goat who gets sent out to take our sin far from us. And this is the most complicated thing I want to say this morning. As we've been going through Leviticus, it has struck me how It's not really the death of these animals that matter that much to God. In other words, it's not as though God says, I'm really bothered by your sin, but if something dies, I'll be okay. In fact, in Leviticus 18, it says this, the the blood is life. It's not the death that matters so much as the representation of life that is there. Now, here's where it gets kind of complicated, because I I think that's a hard imagination for us. We're so used to thinking about the death that matters, not the life. And so let me illustrate it quickly this way. So there's an author and a poet that I really do love, a guy named Wendell Berry. I mention him from time to time. If you're not familiar with his work, he's wonderful. I tried to get through all of his novels this summer. He's such a gifted writer and wonderful poet. But Berry, Wendell Berry has an agenda, and his agenda is this. He's kind of a farmer poet, And his big concern is this, that in modern day life, we go to Costco way too much. And that all of the stuff that we buy to eat has been made somewhere else, grown or processed somewhere else. And so our whole life is about going to Costco and getting frozen chicken breasts, But we have no idea where they came from, right? And Wendell is actually a little concerned about that distance. He's not concerned that we eat that stuff, but he's concerned that we don't really fully appreciate it or understand it. And so, really quickly, as I've been reading Leviticus, you know, you can kind of go, this is a lot of blood and guts in this stuff. And we're throwing blood everywhere, and it's kind of gross. But you know, I realized, and I Googled this just for fun we are no less bloody than the people were in Leviticus. In fact, the USDA estimates that each year in the US, we slaughter 34 million cows, 130 million pigs, and this is crazy. 9.3 9.3 billion with a B, chickens, in a year. That's a lot of feathers. That's a lot of blood and guts. That's a lot of livers to try to figure out what to do with. That's kind of gross. Now, here's the thing Barry would say. That's, all, that's fine. It's not necessarily... Thinks we should all be vegetarians. But he kind of thinks this. As we approach Thanksgiving, he kind of thinks it would be good if we actually, the turkey that we eat, if we had helped, you know, if we'd have seen it hatched. And we'd have fed it and raised it and named it. So then when we gathered around it, it wasn't just a frozen butter ball from Albertsons, but it was like, this is Tom. (laughs) This is old Betty. Because he feels like we'd be more appreciative if we knew it, right? Are you with me? And here's this point. Because when we are able to just go by it, we forget how dependent our life is on the life of other creatures. And how dependent our life is on the resources in the world and the seasons of the year and how much our life is dependent upon each other. And we too often forget that. And so if I could kind of land this plane, in those rituals, they are constantly reminded of a God who is patient and gracious. But in that blood that is life, they are constantly reminded of how dependent they are on that grace and that goodness, not just of those creatures, but of the very being of God in God's self, dwelling in the midst of God's people. Here is why that is important. Leviticus asks the most important question the scripture asks, how are you going to live? And the answer is, you are called to be holy as God is holy. And if you take that seriously, then there are some things you can't do and some things that you should do. And you're going to have to really think about and live into some rehabiting of your life. But remember this, that life to which we are called is not easy and God is gracious and will not stop until he has finished that work in us. But this is why we gather around this table. Because God has not said, now go, figure it out work harder. But those rituals remind us that God has extended grace that not only forgives us, but empowers us to do that to which he has called us. And that's why this morning as we gather around this table, we haven't come just to celebrate the fact that Christ died In fact, if all we were going to do this morning is just come and be reminded that Christ died, we could come up with a cool video that would be much more powerful than just bread and cup being broken. But we come to be reminded of the grace made possible in broken body and shed blood, but we also come to rely on it, to take it into ourselves, to allow the presence of God that dwells in our midst to begin to change us from the inside out. And so God, help us today. Leviticus scares me. Not because it's so strange or bloody, but because Leviticus has a call to all of us that I think is central to the gospel to be holy as you are holy. Yikes. For as we come today and we look at especially the embodiment of your character, your son Jesus Christ, and we look at ourselves, wow, there is a huge difference. And so teach us what to say no to, teach us what to say yes to, rehabit our hearts by your love, We thank you for a grace that is is patient and forgiving. But we thank you today for a grace that is present. And so as we gather around this table today, make us what we eat today. Make us holy. Make us the body of Christ, reflecting your love for the sake of the world. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite those who are going to help me serve to come at this time. This meal is for everybody today. Um, there's no m- membership or requirement other than a realization of how deeply we need God's grace. And so if you do me a favor, if you would hang on to the elements, we will partake of this meal together. But let to sing together today as we're served. I would invite you, uh, if you would, to hold the elements out in front of you. Let me pray a prayer of blessing. Almighty God, if we have listened well to your word today, how overwhelmed we should feel. Common, everyday, broken people, called by you to be holy. How can it be? But we hold in our hands very common things, bread and cup. And so make them be for us today something so uncommon, an uncommon grace that forgives and will not let us go. but also a transforming and sanctifying grace that makes us what we eat today. Make us the body of Christ. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. After having given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take, let us eat this morning in remembrance of his transforming grace. When supper was over, he took the cup. He blessed it. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink this morning, remembering that there is life in the blood that gives us new life. May it be so. Make us holy as you are holy. And God's people said... Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's celebrate that. Well, just a quick thing before you go. Um, last week, thanks for so many of you who were here and participated uh, during this Thanksgiving month. Uh, we are giving away from ourselves in this partnership that we have uh, with Southeast Asia, and our goal is to raise $10,000 above our regular tithes and offerings and faith promise giving. Uh, for that, uh, we're at $4,000 after one week, and so thank you. As I said last week, um, there are folks who could probably just do that, it's so much more fun when we all participate in the ways uh, that that each of us can. And so we'd love for you to be part of that. You can give online or come next week or give the ushers a check on the way out, whatever you want to do um, as part of that. If you've listened well this morning, please understand this. The Christian faith does not have a first class and business section and then coach. You don't get to have all the people who get to know they're going to heaven when they die. And then if you're, but you're really serious about this, you can move up to the other spaces and try to be holy. It is the call of God. He is the Lord, our God. And he calls us from young to old and everything in between to be holy as he is holy. And so may the God of peace himself make us holy. May he sanctify us through and through. And may every single part of our being, our spirit, soul, and body, may it be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls us and keeps calling us, he is faithful. And he will not stop until he finishes this work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.